Section 10 of the Critique of Practical Reason by Immanuel Kant Translated by Thomas Kingsmill Abbott First Part Elements of Pure Practical Reason Book 1 The Analytic of Pure Practical Reason Chapter 3 Of the Motives of Pure Practical Reason Critical Examination of the Analytic of Pure Practical Reason this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. By the critical examination of a science, or of a portion of it which constitutes a system by itself, I understand the inquiry and proof why it must have this and no other systematic form, when we compare it with another system which is based on a similar faculty of knowledge. Now, practical and speculative reason are based on the same faculty, so far as both are pure reason. Therefore, the difference in their systematic form must be determined by the comparison of both, and the ground of this must be assigned. The analytic of pure theoretic reason had to do with the knowledge of such objects as may have been given to the understanding, and was obliged, therefore, to begin from intuition, and consequently, as this is always sensible, from sensibility, and only after that could advance to concepts of the objects of this intuition, and could only end with principles after both these had proceeded. On the contrary, since practical reason has not to do with objects so as to know them, but with its own faculty of realizing them, in accordance with the knowledge of them, that is, with a will which is a causality inasmuch as reason contains its determining principle, since, consequently, it has not to furnish an object of intuition, but, as practical reason, has to furnish only a law, because the notion of causality always implies the reference to a law which determines the existence of the many in relation to one another. Hence a critical examination of the analytic of reason, if this is to be practical reason, and this is properly the problem, must begin with a possibility of practical principles a priori. Only after that can it proceed to concepts of the objects of a practical reason, namely those of absolute good and evil, in order to assign them in accordance with those principles. For prior to those principles they cannot possibly be given as good and evil by any faculty of knowledge. And only then could the section be concluded with the last chapter that, namely, which treats of the relation of the pure practical reason to the sensibility, and of its necessary influence thereon, which is a priori cognizable, that is, of the moral sentiment. Thus the analytic of the practical pure reason has the whole extent of the conditions of its use in common with the theoretical, but in reverse order. The analytic of pure theoretic reason was divided into transcendental aesthetic, and transcendental logic, that of the practical, reversely, into logic and aesthetic of pure practical reason. If I may, for the sake of analogy merely, use these designations, which are not quite suitable. This logic, again, was there divided into the analytic of concepts and that of principles, here into that of principles and concepts. The aesthetic also had in the former case two parts, on account of the two kinds of sensible intuition. Here the sensibility is not considered as a capacity of intuition at all, but merely as feeling, which can be a subjective ground of desire, and, in regard to it, pure practical reason admits no further division. 
it is also easy to see the reason why this division into two parts with its subdivision was not actually adopted here as one might have been induced to attempt by the example of the former critique for since it is pure reason that is here considered in its practical use and consequently as proceeding from a priori principles and not from empirical principles of determination hence the division of the analytic of pure practical reason must resemble that of a syllogism namely proceeding from the universal in the major premise the moral principle through a minor premise containing a subsumption of possible actions as good or evil under the former to the conclusion namely the subjective determination of the will an interest in the possible practical good and in the maxim founded on it he who has been able to convince himself of the truth of the positions occurring in the analytic will take pleasure in such comparisons for they justly suggest the expectation that we may perhaps some day be able to discern the unity of the whole faculty of reason theoretical as well as practical and be able to derive all from one principle which is what human reason inevitably demands as it finds complete satisfaction only in a perfectly systematic unity of its knowledge if now we consider also the contents of the knowledge that we can have of a pure practical reason and by means of it as shown by the analytic we find along with a remarkable analogy between it and the theoretical no less remarkable differences as regards the theoretical the faculty of a pure rational cognition a priori could be easily and evidently proved by examples from sciences in which as they put their principles to the test in so many ways by methodical use there is not so much reason as in common knowledge to fear a secret mixture of empirical principles of cognition but that pure reason without the admixture of any empirical principle is practical of itself this could only be shown from the commonest practical use of reason by verifying the fact that every man's natural reason acknowledges the supreme practical principle as the supreme law of his will a law completely a priori and not depending on any sensible data it was necessary first to establish and verify the purity of its origin even in the judgment of this common reason before science could take it in hand to make use of it as a fact that is prior to all disputation about its possibility and all the consequences that may be drawn from it but this circumstance may be readily explained from what has just been said because practical pure reason must necessarily begin with principles which therefore must be the first data the foundation of all science and cannot be derived from it it was possible to effect this verification of moral principles as principles of a pure reason quite well and with sufficient certainty by a single appeal to the judgment of common sense for this reason that anything empirical which might slip into our maxims as a determining principle of the will can be detected at once by the feeling of pleasure or pain which necessarily attaches to it as exciting desire whereas pure practical reason positively refuses to admit this feeling into its principles as a condition the heterogeneity of the determining principles the empirical and rational is clearly detected by this resistance of a practically legislating reason against every admixture of inclination and by a peculiar kind of sentiment which however does not precede the legislation of the practical reason but on the contrary is produced by this as a constraint namely by the feeling of a respect 
such as no man has for inclinations of whatever kind but for the law only, and it is detected in so marked and prominent a manner that even the most uninstructed cannot fail to see at once, in an example presented to him, that empirical principles of volition may indeed urge him to follow their attractions, but that he can never be expected to obey anything but the pure practical law of reason alone. The distinction between the doctrine of happiness and the doctrine of morality, in the former of which empirical principles constitute the entire foundation, while in the second they do not form the smallest part of it, is the first and most important office of the analytic of pure practical reason, and it must proceed in it with as much exactness and, so to speak, scrupulousness as any geometer in his work. The philosopher, however, has greater difficulties to contend with here, as always in rational cognition by means of concepts merely, without construction, because he cannot take any intuition as a foundation, for a pure nominum. He has, however, this advantage, that, like the chemist, he can at any time make an experiment with every man's practical reason, for the purpose of distinguishing the moral, pure, principle of determination from the empirical, namely, by adding the moral law, as a determining principle, to the empirically affected will, for example, that of the man who would be ready to lie because he can gain something thereby. It is as if the analyst added alkali to a solution of lime in hydrochloric acid. The acid at once forsakes the lime, combines with the alkali, and the lime is precipitated. Just in the same way, if to a man who is otherwise honest, or who for this occasion places himself only in thought in the position of an honest man, we present the moral law by which he recognizes the worthlessness of the liar, his practical reason, in forming a judgment of what ought to be done, at once forsakes the advantage, combines with that which maintains in him respect for his own person, truthfulness, and the advantage after it has been separated and washed from every particle of reason, which is altogether on the side of duty, is easily weighed by everyone, so that it can enter into combination with reason in other cases, only not where it could be opposed to the moral law, which reason never forsakes, but most closely unites itself with. But it does not follow that this distinction between the principle of happiness and that of morality is in opposition between them, and pure practical reason does not require that we should renounce all claim to happiness, but only that the moment duty is in question we should take no account of happiness. It may even in certain respects be a duty to provide for happiness, partly because, including skill, wealth, riches, it contains means for the fulfilment of our duty, partly because the absence of it, for example poverty, implies temptations to transgress our duty, but it can never be an immediate duty to promote our happiness, still less can it be the principle of all duty. Now, as all determining principles of the will, except the law of pure practical reason alone, the moral law, are all empirical, and, therefore, as such, belong to the principle of happiness, they must all be kept apart from the supreme principle of morality, and never be incorporated with it as a condition since this would be to destroy all moral worth just as much as any empirical admixture with geometrical principles would destroy the certainty of mathematical evidence, which in Plato's opinion is the most excellent thing in mathematics, even surpassing their utility. 
Instead, however, of the deduction of the supreme principle of pure practical reason, that is, the explanation of the possibility of such knowledge a priori, the utmost we were able to do was to show that if we saw the possibility of the freedom of an efficient cause, we should also see not merely the possibility, but even the necessity of the moral law as the supreme practical law of rational beings, to whom we attribute freedom of causality of their will. Because both concepts are so inseparably united that we might define practical freedom as independence of the will on anything but the moral law. But we cannot perceive the possibility of the freedom of an efficient cause, especially in the world of sense. We are fortunate if only we can be sufficiently assured that there is no proof of its impossibility, and are now, by the moral law which postulates it, compelled and therefore authorized to assume it. However, there are still many who think that they can explain this freedom on empirical principles, like any other physical faculty, and treat it as a psychological property, the explanation of which only requires a more exact study of the nature of the soul and of the motives of the will, and not as a transcendental predicate of the causality of a being that belongs to the world of sense, which is really the point. They thus deprive us of the grand revelation which we obtain through practical reason by means of the moral law, the revelation, namely, of a supersensible world by the realization of the otherwise transcendent concept of freedom, and by this deprive us also of the moral law itself, which admits no empirical principle of determination. Therefore it will be necessary to add something here as a protection against this delusion, and to exhibit empiricism in its naked superficiality. The notion of causality as physical necessity, in opposition to the same notion as freedom, concerns only the existence of things so far as it is determinable in time, and consequently as phenomena in opposition to their causality as things in themselves. Now, if we take the attributes of existence of things in time for attributes of things in themselves, which is the common view, then it is impossible to reconcile the necessity of the causal relation with freedom. They are contradictory. For from the former it follows that every event, and consequently every action that takes place at a certain point of time, is a necessary result of what existed in time proceeding. Now, as time past is no longer in my power, hence every action that I perform must be the necessary result of certain determining grounds which are not in my power, that is, at the moment in which I am acting, I am never free. Nay, even if I assume that my whole existence is independent on any foreign cause, for instance, God, so that the determining principles of my causality, and even of my whole existence, were not outside myself, yet this would not in the least transform that physical necessity into freedom. For, at every moment of time, I am still under the necessity of being determined to action by that which is not in my power, and the series of events, infinite, a parte priori, which I only continue, according to a predetermined order, and could never begin of myself, would be a continuous physical chain, and therefore my causality would never be freedom. If, then, we would attribute freedom to a being whose existence is determined in time, we cannot accept him from the law of necessity as to all events in his existence, and consequently as to his actions also, for that would be to hand him over to blind chance. 
Now, as this law inevitably applies to all the causality of things, so far as their existence is determinable in time, it follows that if this were the mode in which we had also to conceive the existence of these things in themselves, freedom must be rejected as a vain and impossible conception. Consequently, if we would still save it, no other way remains but to consider that the existence of a thing, so far as it is determinable in time, and therefore its causality, according to the law of physical necessity, belong to appearance, and to attribute freedom to the same being as a thing in itself. This is certainly inevitable, if we would retain both these contradictory concepts together. But in application, when we try to explain their combination in one and the same action, great difficulties present themselves which seem to render such a combination impracticable. When I say of a man who commits a theft that, by the law of causality, this deed is a necessary result of the determining causes in preceding time, then it was impossible that it could not have happened. How, then, can the judgment, according to the moral law, make any change, and suppose that it could have been omitted, because the law says it ought to have been omitted? That is, how can a man be called quite free at the same moment, and with respect to the same action in which he is subject to an inevitable physical necessity? Some try to evade this by saying that the causes that determine his causality are of such a kind as to agree with a comparative notion of freedom. According to this, that is sometimes called a free effect, the determining physical cause of which lies within the acting thing itself. For example, that which a projectile performs when it is in free motion, in which case we use the word freedom, because while it is in flight it is not urged by anything external, or as we call the motion of a clock a free motion, because it moves its hands itself, which therefore do not require to be pushed by external force, so although the actions of man are necessarily determined by causes which proceed in time, we yet call them free, because these causes are ideas produced by our own faculties, whereby desires are evoked on occasion of circumstances, and hence actions are wrought according to our own pleasure. This is a wretched subterfuge with which some persons still let themselves be put off, and so think they have solved with a pretty word-jugglery that difficult problem at the solution of which centuries have laboured in vain, and which can therefore scarcely be found so completely on the surface. In fact, in the question about the freedom which must be the foundation of all moral laws and the consequent responsibility, it does not matter whether the principles which necessarily determine causality by a physical law reside within the subject or without him, or, in the former case, whether these principles are instinctive or are conceived by reason, if, as is admitted by these men themselves, these determining ideas have the ground of their existence in time and in the antecedent state, and this again in an antecedent, etc. Then it matters not that these are internal. It matters not that they have a psychological and not a mechanical causality, that is, produce actions by means of ideas and not by bodily movements. They are still determining principles of the causality of a being whose existence is determinable in time and therefore under the necessitation of conditions of past time, which therefore, when the subject has to act, are no longer in his power. This may imply psychological freedom, if we choose to apply this term to a merely internal chain of ideas in the mind, but it involves physical necessity, and therefore leaves no room for transcendental freedom, which must be conceived as independence on everything empirical, 
and consequently on nature generally, whether it is an object of the internal sense considered in time only, or of the external in time and space. Without this freedom, in the latter and true sense, which alone is practical a priori, no moral law and no moral imputation are possible. Just for this reason the necessity of events in time, according to the physical law of causality, may be called the mechanism of nature, although we do not mean by this that things which are subject to it must be really material machines. We look here only to the necessity of the connection of events in a time series as it is developed according to the physical law whether the subject in which this development takes place is called automaton materiale, when the mechanical being is moved by matter, or with Leibniz spirituale, when it is impelled by ideas. And if the freedom of our will were no other than the latter, say the psychological and comparative, not also transcendental, that is, absolute, then it would at bottom be nothing better than the freedom of a turnspit, which, when once it is wound up, accomplishes its motions of itself. Now, in order to remove in the supposed case the apparent contradiction between freedom and the mechanism of nature in one and the same action, we must remember what was said in the critique of pure reason, or what follows therefrom. That is, that the necessity of nature, which cannot coexist with the freedom of the subject, appertains only to the attributes of the thing that is subject to the time conditions, consequently only to those of the acting subject as a phenomenon, that therefore in this respect the determining principles of every action of the same reside in what belongs to past time and is no longer in his power, in which must be included his own past actions and the character that these may determine for him in his own eyes as a phenomenon. But the very same subject, being on the other side conscious of himself as a thing in himself, considers his existence also in so far as it is not subject to time conditions, and regards himself as only determinable by laws which he gives himself through reason. And in this, his existence, nothing is antecedent to the determination of his will, but every action, and in general every modification of his existence, varying according to his internal sense, even the whole series of his existence as a sensible being, is in the consciousness of his supersensible existence nothing but the result, and never to be regarded as the determining principle of his causality as a noumenon. In this view, now, the rational being can justly say of every unlawful action that he performs that he could very well have left it undone, although as appearance it is sufficiently determined in the past, and in this respect is absolutely necessary. For it, with all the past which determines it, belongs to the one single phenomenon of his character which he makes for himself, in consequence of which he imputes the causality of those appearances to himself as a cause independent of sensibility. With this agree perfectly the judicial sentences of that wonderful faculty in us which we call conscience. A man may use as much art as he likes in order to paint to himself an unlawful act that he remembers as an unintentional error, a mere oversight, such as one can never altogether avoid, and therefore as something in which he was carried away by the stream of physical necessity, and thus to make himself out innocent. Yet he finds that the advocate who speaks in his favour can by no means silence the accuser within, if only he is conscious that at the time when he did this wrong he was in his senses, that is, in possession of his freedom. And, nevertheless, he accounts for his error from some bad habits, 
which by gradual neglect of attention he has allowed to grow upon him to such a degree that he can regard his error as its natural consequence, although this cannot protect him from the blame and reproach which he casts upon himself. This is also the ground of repentance for a long past action at every recollection of it, a painful feeling produced by the moral sentiment, and which is practically void in so far as it cannot serve to undo what has been done. Hence Priestley, as a true and consistent fatalist, declares it absurd, and he deserves to be commended for this candour more than those who, while they maintain the mechanism of the will in fact, and its freedom in words only, yet wish it to be thought that they include it in their system of compromise, although they do not explain the possibility of such moral imputation. But the pain is quite legitimate, because when the law of our intelligible, supersensible existence, the moral law, is in question, reason recognizes no distinction of time, and only asks whether the event belongs to me as my act, and then always morally connects the same feeling with it, whether it has happened just now or long ago. For, in reference to the supersensible consciousness of his existence, that is, freedom, the life of sense is but a single phenomenon, which, inasmuch as it contains merely manifestations of the mental disposition with regard to the moral law, that is, of the character, must be judged not according to the physical necessity that belongs to it as phenomenon, but according to the absolute spontaneity of freedom. It may therefore be admitted that, if it were possible to have so profound an insight into a man's mental character as shown by internal as well as external actions as to know all its motives, even the smallest, and likewise all the external occasions that can influence them, we could calculate a man's conduct for the future with as great certainty as a lunar or solar eclipse. And nevertheless we may maintain that the man is free. In fact, if we were capable of a further glance, namely an intellectual intuition of the same subject, which indeed is not granted to us, and instead of it we have only the rational concept, then we should perceive that this whole chain of appearances in regard to all that concerns the moral laws depends on the spontaneity of the subject as a thing in itself, of the determination of which no physical explanation can be given. In default of this intuition, the moral law assures us of this distinction between the relation of our actions as appearance to our sensible nature and the relation of this sensible nature to the supersensible substratum in us. In this view, which is natural to our reason, though inexplicable, we can also justify some judgments which we passed with all conscientiousness, and which yet at first sight seem quite opposed to all equity. There are cases in which men, even with the same education which has been profitable to others, yet show such early depravity, and so continue to progress in it to years of manhood, that they are thought to be born villains, and their character altogether incapable of improvement, and nevertheless they are judged for what they do or leave undone, they are reproached for their faults as guilty, nay, they themselves, the children, regard these reproaches as well-founded, exactly as if in spite of the hopeless natural quality of mind ascribed to them, they remained just as responsible as any other man. This could not happen if we did not suppose that whatever springs from a man's choice, as every action intentionally performed undoubtedly does, has as its foundation a free causality, which from early youth expresses its character in its manifestations, that is, actions. These, on account of the uniformity of conduct, exhibit a natural connection, 
which, however, does not make the vicious quality of the will necessary, but, on the contrary, is the consequence of the evil principles voluntarily adopted and unchangeable, which only make it so much the more culpable and deserving of punishment. There still remains a difficulty in the combination of freedom with the mechanism of nature in a being belonging to the world of sense, a difficulty which, even after all the foregoing is admitted, threatens freedom with complete destruction. But with this danger there is also a circumstance that offers hope of an issue still favourable to freedom, namely that the same difficulty presses much more strongly, in fact, as we shall presently see, presses only, on the system that holds the existence determinable in time and space to be the existence of things in themselves. It does not therefore oblige us to give up our capital supposition of the ideality of time as a mere form of sensible intuition, and consequently as a mere manner of representation which is proper to the subject as belonging to the world of sense. And therefore it only requires that this view be reconciled with this idea. The difficulty is as follows. Even if it is admitted that the supersensible subject can be free with respect to a given action, although, as a subject also belonging to the world of sense, he is under mechanical conditions with respect to the same action, still, as soon as we allow that God as universal first cause is also the cause of the existence of substance, a proposition which can never be given up without at the same time giving up the notion of God as the being of all beings, and therewith giving up his all-sufficiency, on which everything in theology depends, it seems as if we must admit that a man's actions have their determining principle in something which is wholly out of his power, namely in the causality of a supreme being distinct from himself, and on whom his own existence and the whole determination of his causality are absolutely dependent. In point of fact, if a man's actions as belonging to his modifications in time were not merely modifications of him as appearance, but as a thing in itself, freedom could not be saved. Man would be a marionette or an automaton, like Faucanson's, prepared and wound up by the supreme artist. Self-consciousness would indeed make him a thinking automaton, but the consciousness of his own spontaneity would be mere delusion if this were mistaken for freedom and it would serve this name only in a comparative sense, since, although the proximate determining causes of its motion, and a long series of their determining causes, are internal, yet the last and highest is found in a foreign hand. Therefore I do not see how those who still insist on regarding time and space as attributes belonging to the existence of things in themselves can avoid admitting the fatality of actions, or if, like the otherwise acute Mendelssohn, they allow them to be conditions necessarily belonging to the existence of finite and derived beings, but not to that of the infinite supreme being. I do not see on what ground they can justify such a distinction, or, indeed, how they can avoid the contradiction that meets them when they hold that existence in time is an attribute necessarily belonging to finite things in themselves, whereas God is the cause of this existence, but cannot be the cause of time or space itself since this must be presupposed as a necessary a priori condition of the existence of things, and consequently as regards the existence of these things. His causality must be subject to conditions, and even to the condition of time, and this would inevitably bring in everything contradictory to the notions of his infinity and independence. 
On the other hand, it is quite easy for us to draw the distinction between the attribute of the divine existence of being independent on all time conditions and that of a being of the world of sense, the distinction being that between the existence of a being in itself and that of a thing in appearance. Hence, if this ideality of time and space is not adopted, nothing remains but Spinozism, in which space and time are essential attributes of the supreme being himself, and the things dependent on him, ourselves therefore included, are not substances but merely accidents inhering in him. Since if these things, as his effects, exist in time only, this being the condition of their existence in themselves, then the actions of these beings must be simply his actions, which he performs in some place and time. Thus Spinozism, in spite of the absurdity of its fundamental idea, argues more consistently than the creation theory can, when beings assumed to be substances, and beings in themselves existing in time, are regarded as effects of a supreme cause, but yet as not belonging to him and his action, but as separate substances. The above-mentioned difficulty is resolved briefly and clearly as follows. If existence in time is a mere sensible mode of representation belonging to thinking beings in the world, and consequently does not apply to them as things in themselves, then the creation of these beings is a creation of things in themselves, since the notion of creation does not belong to the sensible form of representation of existence, or to causality, but can only be referred to noumena. Consequently, when I say of beings in the world of sense that they are created, I so far regard them as noumena. As it would be a contradiction, therefore, to say that God is a creator of appearances, so also it is a contradiction to say that as creator he is the cause of actions in the world of sense, and therefore as appearances, although he is the cause of the existence of the acting beings, which are noumena. If now it is possible to affirm freedom in spite of the natural mechanism of actions as appearances, by regarding existence in time as something that belongs only to appearances, not to things in themselves, then the circumstance that the acting beings are creatures cannot make the slightest difference, since creation concerns their supersensible and not their sensible existence, and therefore cannot be regarded as the determining principle of the appearances. It would be quite different if the beings in the world as things in themselves existed in time, since in that case the creator of substance would be at the same time the author of the whole mechanism of this substance. Of so great importance is the separation of time, as well as space, from the existence of things in themselves which was effected in the critique of the pure speculative reason. It may be said that the solution here proposed involves great difficulty in itself and is scarcely susceptible of a lucid exposition. But is any other solution that has been attempted, or that may be attempted, easier and more intelligible? Rather might we say that the dogmatic teachers of metaphysics have shown more shrewdness than candor in keeping this difficult point out of sight as much as possible, in the hope that if they said nothing about it, probably no one would think of it. If science is to be advanced, all difficulties must be laid open, and we must even search for those that are hidden, for every difficulty calls forth a remedy which cannot be discovered without science gaining either in extent or in exactness, and thus even obstacles become means of increasing the thoroughness of science. On the other hand, if the difficulties are intentionally concealed, or merely removed by palliatives, 
then sooner or later they burst out into incurable mischiefs, which bring science to ruin in an absolute scepticism. Since it is, properly speaking, the notion of freedom alone amongst all the ideas of pure speculative reason that so greatly enlarges our knowledge in the sphere of the supersensible, though only of our practical knowledge, I ask myself why it exclusively possesses so great fertility, whereas the others only designate the vacant space for possible beings of the pure understanding, but are unable by any means to define the concept of them. I presently find that as I cannot think anything without a category, I must first look for a category for the rational idea of freedom with which I am now concerned, and this is the category of causality. And although freedom, a concept of the reason, being a transcendent concept, cannot have any intuition corresponding to it, yet the concept of the understanding, for the synthesis of which the former demands the unconditioned, namely the concept of causality, must have a sensible intuition given, by which first its objective reality is assured. Now, the categories are all divided into two classes, the mathematical, which concern the unity of synthesis in the conception of objects, and the dynamical, which refer to the unity of synthesis in the conception of the existence of objects. The former, those of magnitude and quality, always contain a synthesis of the homogeneous, and it is not possible to find in this the unconditioned antecedent to what is given in sensible intuition as conditioned in space and time, as this would itself have to belong to space and time, and therefore be again still conditioned. Whence it resulted in the dialectic of pure theoretic reason that the opposite methods of attaining the unconditioned and the totality of the conditions were both wrong. The categories of the second class, those of causality and of the necessity of a thing, did not require this homogeneity, of the conditioned and the condition in synthesis, since here what we have to explain is not how the intuition is compounded from a manifold in it, but only how the existence of the conditioned object corresponding to it is added to the existence of the condition, added, namely, in the understanding as connected therewith. And in that case it was allowable to suppose in the supersensible world the unconditioned antecedent to the altogether conditioned in the world of sense, both as regards the causal connection and the contingent existence of things themselves, although this unconditioned remained indeterminate, and to make the synthesis transcendent. Hence it was found in the dialectic of the pure speculative reason that the two apparently opposite methods of obtaining for the conditioned and the unconditioned were not really contradictory. For example, in the synthesis of causality to conceive for the conditioned, in the series of causes and effects of the sensible world, a causality which has no sensible condition, and that the same action which, as belonging to the world of sense, is always sensibly conditioned, that is, mechanically necessary, yet at the same time may be derived from a causality not sensibly conditioned, being the causality of the acting being as belonging to the supersensible world, and may consequently be conceived as free. Now, the only point in question was to change this maybe into is, that is, that we should be able to show in an actual case, as it were by a fact, that certain actions imply such a causality, namely the intellectual, sensibly unconditioned, whether they are actual or only commanded, that is, objectively necessary in a practical sense. We could not hope to find this connection in actions actually given in experience as events of the sensible world, since causality with freedom 
must always be sought outside the world of sense in the world of intelligence. But things of sense are the only things offered to our perception and observation. Hence nothing remained but to find an incontestable objective principle of causality which excludes all sensible conditions, that is, a principle in which reason does not appeal further to something else as a determining ground of its causality, but contains this determining ground itself by means of that principle, and in which, therefore, it is itself as pure reason practical. Now, this principle had not to be searched for or discovered. It had long been in the reason of all men, and incorporated in their nature, and is the principle of morality. Therefore, that unconditioned causality, with the faculty of it, namely, freedom, is no longer merely indefinitely and problematically thought, this speculative reason could prove to be feasible, but is even as regards the law of its causality definitely and assertorially known, and with it the fact that a being, I myself, belonging to the world of sense, belongs also to the supersensible world. This is also positively known, and thus the reality of the supersensible world is established, and in practical respects definitely given, and this definiteness, which for theoretical purposes would be transcendent, is for practical purposes imminent. We could not, however, make a similar step as regards the second dynamical idea, namely that of a necessary being. We could not rise to it from the sensible world without the aid of the first dynamical idea. For, if we attempted to do so, we should have ventured to leave at a bound all that is given to us, and to leap to that of which nothing is given us that can help us to effect the connection of such a supersensible being with the world of sense, since the necessary being would have to be known as given outside ourselves. On the other hand, it is now obvious that this connection is quite possible in relation to our own subject, inasmuch as I know myself to be, on the one side, as an intelligible, supersensible being, determined by the moral law, by means of freedom, and on the other side as acting in the world of sense. It is the concept of freedom alone that enables us to find the unconditioned and intelligible for the conditioned and sensible without going out of ourselves. For it is our own reason that by means of the supreme and unconditional practical law knows that itself and the being that is conscious of this law, our own person, belong to the pure world of understanding, and moreover defines the manner in which, as such, it can be active. In this way it can be understood why in the whole faculty of reason it is the practical reason only that can help us to pass beyond the world of sense, and give us knowledge of a supersensible order and connection which, however, for this very reason, cannot be extended further than is necessary for pure practical purposes. Let me be permitted on this occasion to make one more remark, namely, that every step that we make with pure reason, even in the practical sphere where no attention is paid to subtle speculation, nevertheless accords with all the material points of the critique of the theoretical reason as closely and directly as if each step had been thought out with deliberate purpose to establish this confirmation. Such a thorough agreement, wholly unsought for and quite obvious, as any one can convince himself if he will only carry moral inquiries up to their principles, between the most important proposition of practical reason and the often seemingly too subtle and needless remarks of the critique of the speculative reason, occasions surprise and astonishment, and confirms the maxim already recognized and praised by others, namely, that in every scientific inquiry 
we should pursue our way steadily with all possible exactness and frankness, without caring for any objections that may be raised from outside its sphere, but as far as we can to carry out our inquiry truthfully and completely by itself. Frequent observation has convinced me that, when such researches are concluded, that which in one part of them appear to me very questionable, considered in relation to other extraneous doctrines, when I left this doubtfulness out of sight for a time, and only attended to the business in hand until it was completed, at last was unexpectedly found to agree perfectly with what had been discovered separately, without the least regard to those doctrines, and without any partiality or prejudice for them. Authors would save themselves many errors and much labour lost, because spent on a delusion, if they could only resolve to go to work with more frankness. End of section 10